0: Good morning. If i like you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Piglet leaned over to Pooh and whispered, Pooh! Yes, Piglet. Piglet took Pooh's paw and said, Nothing. I just wanted to be sure you were there. One of the greatest words in the human language is relationship. We were not made to live without them. When God said it is not good for man to be alone, that included marriage and the whole gamut of relationships that came out of that anthropologist Margaret Mead said, having someone wonder where you are when you don't come home at night is a very old human need. If you try to name things more important than relationships, you're gonna have a very short list. And Whether you re- realize it or not, the recent verses we've gone through in 2nd Corinthians are all about relationships. We saw at the end of chapter 5 that God sent His Son to die in our place so that He could reconcile us. That is, change our relationship with Him from enemies to friends, from far away to near. We saw... Last week, in the first part of chapter 6, the importance of relationships, Paul says, I can endure all the trials and all the afflictions and all the persecutions and all the rejections from the world that come to me for being a servant of God, but I cannot handle rejection from you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That relationship is too important. And then this morning in our passage, Paul is still talking about relationships. He's talking about right and wrong relationships. You know, some relationships we have are wonderful, and they help fulfill our life. Others are harmful, and they drain our life. Some are matches. Some are mismatches. See if you can pick out those two kind of relationships in this passage this morning as I read it for you, beginning in chapter 6, and verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God there are two relationships mentioned here, the mismatch and the match. First of all, we'll look at the mismatch, and that is being linked to unbelievers in verses 14 to 16. Verse 14 literally reads, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, a yoke is was a wooden harness designed to fit two animals side by side who would then together pull a cart, who would then together pull a plow. The background for this verse is found in Deuteronomy 22.10 where God says, Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Now there are several reasons for this prohibition. One is ceremonial. An ox was a clean animal. A donkey was an unclean animal, so they were not to be put together. The other reason was practical. An ox and a donkey have different natures. An ox is typically hardworking and cooperative. A donkey is reluctant and stubborn. So you can imagine what happens when you yoke together an ox and a donkey. The ox is moving, raring to go, ready to go. The donkey is digging his heels in, stubbornly refusing to go. Now, since most of you are not farmers, and those of you who may have experienced farming, have never plowed with an oxen or with donkeys, this metaphor may be lost on you, and so I have decided to add another illustration. I'm wearing two kinds of shoes today. One is casual, the other is formal. One is practical, the other is not real practical. One is made for running, the other is made for standing, sitting. One is functional, the other is fashionable. I'm wearing those today, so as you look at me, you are reminded not to have mismatched relationships. And if you stare at me for 30 minutes and you don't get this, the yoke's on you. Just as an ox is mismatched with a donkey, just as a dress shoe is mismatched with a running shoe, there can be relationships in your life where you as a believer are mismatched with an unbeliever. Ray Steadman wrote, It is a cruel thing to to yoke together two things of incompatible natures. There are certain associations that Christians have with unbelievers that constitute a yoke. And these associations are a certain cause for misery and shame in a Christian's life. We are to avoid them. They will hinder us, limit us, bind us, and keep us from enjoying the fullness God has in mind for us. They are like trying to mix oil and water. Now what does it mean to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? Let me start by telling you what it doesn't mean. First of all, this doesn't mean separating yourself physically from the world. Through the years, some Christians have taken the words in verse 17. Notice what it says. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Over the years, some people have taken those words to mean they should completely retreat from the world. That's why monasteries were built in the Middle Ages. The concept was that true Christianity meant taking some kind of vow and literally leaving the world to live in the solitude of a monastery. Reminds me of the monk who joined the monastery and took an oath of silence. The monks could only speak two words a year. After the first year they gathered around the table with their leader, and the rookie monk said, Bed hard. Another year went by and they gathered to speak their two words, and the monk said, soup cold. After the third year, the monk said, I quit. The leader said, I'm not surprised. All you've done since you got here is gripe, gripe, gripe. You know, the problem with running away from the world is that you take you with you, and you are your major problem. The world is one of your enemies, but you have two others, the devil and your fallen nature. In John 17:15, Jesus said, my prayer is, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Jesus doesn't want you taken out of the world. He wants you kept from the evil one and the evil that is in the world. You are not called by the Lord to retreat from the world. You are actually called by the Lord to advance into the world. Jesus says we're not in the world, or we are in the world, but we are not of the world. If you're a writer, write this down. That means we're not to be isolated from the world, but we are to be insulated from the world. A boat is in the water, but it's not of the water and like a boat we are in the world but if the world gets in us we begin to sink. What's it mean not to be unequally yoked with the world? Well the second thing it doesn't mean is refusing to have friendships with unbelievers. Others have taken this verse to mean a Christian shouldn't have any kind of relationship with an unbeliever and so you have the Christians who sort of create the concept, let's have a holy huddle, and they have their holy huddle, and they never break and run a play. They just stay in the holy huddle and stay away from everyone around them. They believe that everything and every one in the world is evil, and any contact is to be avoided at all costs. What did Jesus say in John 17, 18? He said, as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You see, you are not a monk. You are a missionary. And how can you share Christ's love with someone if you don't know them? How can you share Christ's love with someone if you have no relationship with them? Did Jesus have relationship with unbelievers? In Luke 7, 34, he said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's an accusation that I would hope you would all have. He's a friend of sinners. The Bible tells us Jesus came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost. Lost people are not the plague. Lost people are the purpose and the passion of Jesus. And if you're going to have his heart for lost people, they're going to be your purpose and your passion as well. Paul told us back in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that you are in this world, this foreign land, as ambassadors of Christ. Christ. You live in a foreign country representing the King, Jesus Christ. So please do not misinterpret this verse. Get out there and make friends with unbelievers. Build bridges to unbelievers, but then cross the bridge and take them the greatest message they will ever hear. A lot of Christians spend all their life building bridges to unbelievers and never finish the bridge and take the message to them. That's the whole purpose of building those relationships. Just keep in mind this important distinction. You can have friendship with an unbeliever, but you can't have fellowship with an unbeliever. You can only have fellowship with someone who is in Christ. And so the goal of your friendships with unbelievers is to bring them to the point where you can have fellowship with them as a brother or a sister. In Christ. So, what does it mean to be unequally yoked? The idea of being yoked means to be tied to someone in a close, intimate relationship. To be yoked means you're partners with someone over an extended period of time in which you share priorities and purposes and goals and values. And Paul says we're not to have that kind of relationship with unbelievers. And to show the absurdity of that, in verses 14 to 16, he asks some rhetorical questions. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. He says, don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership, that's war. Is light best friends with darkness? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust? Hold hands. Obviously, no. And there's an obvious reason why God warns us away from these kinds of mismatched relationships. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, he says it this way. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Let me suggest two relationships that this applies to. This does mean the marriage bond. There is no yoke that ties two people into closer intimate relationship than this. And so Paul is obviously referring to marriage when he speaks about this. Here's the clear directive in scripture. As a believer, you you are not to marry an unbeliever. And that's not a suggestion, that's a command and when it comes to this area of marriage I won't even give people a choice on this if you come to me to perform your marriage ceremony the first question I'm going to ask each of you is to give me your testimony of how you came to know the Lord and if one of you has a testimony and the other doesn't I'm not going to marry you I will meet with you as many times as it takes I will try to bring that person to Christ but I will not put my blessing On what God forbids. Now let me tell you this, I will marry two unbelievers because marriage is not a Christian institution, it was given to mankind. I will marry two unbelievers and they will sit in counseling and listen to the gospel over and over again. You say, well, Dan, what if I'm already married to an unbeliever? Well, then you need to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. And there it says, God will bless you. In fact, he will sanctify your marriage. He will sanctify your unbelieving spouse. He will sanctify your children. That tells me one believer makes a Christian home. God puts his umbrella over that home and protects that home. And he tells you, stay married. Don't leave for that reason. Stay married. You say, well, Dan, what about missionary dating? Let me say this. If Christ is not presented and spiritual issues discussed on the first date, there's nothing missionary about that. That's dating. And let me say this. My experience in however many years I've been in ministry is that 99% of the time, missionary dating doesn't work. So you are literally courting disaster. Here's a great policy. If you don't date an unbeliever, you will not marry an unbeliever. It's that simple. See, when you throw in hormones and romance and all that other stuff, what usually happens is the Christian gets pulled down to the level of the unbeliever. let's say I stood up here on a chair today and I have any one of you come up and I say, I'll try to pull you up on the chair and you try to pull me down. Guess what? Even the weakest person is probably going to pull me off the chair because they have gravity working with them. Well, there's a principle that works in all relationships of life. And that is this. It's, It's what I call the gravity of depravity. It's harder to pull somebody up than it is to pull somebody down. So don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever in marriage or you'll be like these shoes, mismatched. Second, this does mean a business bond. If you form a business partnership with an unbeliever you could be asking for trouble as well. Because that person doesn't share your same values and your same purpose in life. Now, I'm not talking here about if if you work with unbelievers in an office, that's great. If you you get assigned on your job to unbelievers as, as part of a group, that's great. You should be ministering to them and living Christ in front of them but I think this principle could be applied when you enter a binding business relationship with someone who forces you to accept the other person's goals and values. And many Christians have been burned by that over the years. It's like mismatched shoes. Now, secondly, let's look at the match, which is love by our Father. In verses 16 of chapter 6 to chapter 7, verse 1. You see, this passage also tells us about another relationship. And that's the perfect match. Look at the end of verse 16. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's our God, and we're his peeps. You say, well, that sounds pretty generic. What kind of relationship is it? Well, look look at chapter 7 and verse 1. He says, therefore, having these promises. I love that. Because every time God gives a prohibition in Scripture, He gives a corresponding promise. Now, what are the promises at the end of chapter 6 about our relationship with God? Well, I've picked out three of them. You may find more than that, but let me point them out to you. First is his indwelling presence. Look at verse 16 in the middle. God says, I will dwell in them. And then notice the phrase right before that in verse 16. It says, for we are the temple of the living God. God. One of the most common errors that people make today is thinking that a building is God's temple. And that's an easy mistake to make because in the Old Testament, the temple was a structure. First, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness. Later, it was a building on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. But you need to understand that since the cross, God has a new temple And it isn't a building, it's people. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. Now God has a people for his temple. God dwells in you. Now if you'll notice here, it's plural. He's talking about the church here. We are the temple. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it's singular, it's plural. He says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's true of you individually that God dwells in you, and it is true of us collectively as the church, the body of Christ, that he dwells in us. That's quite a relationship. God lives in you. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul calls it a mystery hidden for ages. And what is the mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a promise. Then the second promise is his intimate fellowship. Notice the rest of verse 16. He says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Not only does God live in us, he lives with us us. Now, in the times that the Bible was written, walking was not something one did for exercise. If people in Bible times saw a treadmill, they would be very baffled. Okay, let me get this straight. You pay a lot of money so you can walk and not get anywhere. See, walking in Bible times was the primary form of transportation. And so when you walked with someone, it was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign that you had a shared purpose and goal. You were going to the same place when you walked with someone. Amos 3.3 says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? You know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were expelled, and John Milton's epic poem describes it as paradise lost. But I'll tell you something. Their greatest loss was not the beautiful trees and the lovely rivers and the weed-free lawn. Their greatest loss was their relationship with God. It tells us that in Genesis 3.8, that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. God came down and walked with them in the garden. And when man sinned, what did he do? He ran and he hid from God. And he lost that relationship. He was expelled from the garden and expelled from that relationship where he walked with God. Today, the exciting news is that in Christ, paradise is found. And God walks with us again. Charles Austin put it this way. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Third promise is His infinite care. Verse 18 says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to Me, says the Lord Almighty. What a relationship. We have a father-son, father-daughter relationship with God. And that relationship is so special that Romans 8.15 says we call him Abba, which is the Aramaic word for daddy. We get to call him daddy. And 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. How much does he care for you? He cares for you as a father does his child. I don't know about you, but when I was little, I used to argue about whether my daddy was stronger than other kids' daddies. Because my daddy wore formal shoes. I knew he could fight. Who is our daddy in verse 18? My father is the Lord Almighty. I would say... He can handle your needs. Jesus told us in Matthew 10.30 that your father cares so much about you that he has counted all the hairs on your head. That's infinite care. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. But I have to confess to you, I have never bothered to count the hairs on their heads. God does that. What a relationship. We are loved by our Father. We have His indwelling presence, His intimate fellowship, His infinite care. So He gives us two relationships, the mismatch relationship and the match of all matches in terms of relationship. Can I confess something to you? my shoes are actually starting to feel pretty good together. The longer I wear them, the more comfortable they get, the more normal they seem. The longer you probably look at them, the less shocking they are. The more you begin to accept them. Well, that's the way it is with mismatched relationships. We get in them and often get comfortable with them. We don't even realize what they're doing to us. So what do I want you to take away from this message? Well, you can take away the negative. You can go home and say, I will not bond myself to the wrong people. Or you can go away today with the positive. And the positive is, I will seek and desire and develop my relationship with my Heavenly Father. I'm excited that in this passage we don't just have the negative, we have the positive. I've owned a number of dogs over the years. I now own a cat if anybody wants it. Uh, I like dogs. When we were in the country, we had a dog named Snipper. He was half Springer Spaniel, the smartest, most gentle dog I have ever owned. But I will tell you this about Snipper. he Even he would growl at me if I tried to take a bone away from him. Do you know how to take a bone away from the dog? All you have to do to take a bone away from the dog is offer him a nice juicy steak. And they will leave the bone every time and go for the steak. Well, The same holds true for our relationships. If you are single and dating an unbeliever, you may think that's good, but let me tell you something, that's a bone. And God has a steak for you. God has a better relationship for you, which is your relationship with Him and relationships that are centered in Him. In fact, did you know that the Bible tells you there's another yoke available to you? Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We're to be wearing Jesus' yoke. And when we wear Ye- Jesus' yoke, there's a paradox involved in that. We, a, a, a yoke is designed to labor, and we put on Jesus' yoke, and what do we experience? Rest. That's a paradox. We also experience fulfillment because when you wear Jesus' yoke, you're not gonna be running around saying, I need to be unequally yoked to find fulfillment in life. And why do you find rest? Because Jesus did all the work. You're yoked together with Jesus. He did all the work. On the cross, he said, it's finished. So take my yoke. The work is done. Where did he finish that work? On the cross. And so as we close our service today, we're going to celebrate what it cost him to reconcile you To bring you back into that right relationship. A relationship where he lives in you and walks with you and is a father to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to have a baptism. And then we're going to take communion. The communion are at stations here. I want you to take the time today to really examine your heart. Maybe there's an area in your life today where you say, God, I have become yoked with an unbeliever. Or as, as, as Clay saying earlier, I've, I've basically become yoked with the world itself. I've, I've bought into the world and it's too much a part of me. I'm in the world. I'm not just in the world. The world is in me. And I need to deal with that today. Prepare your heart and then come and celebrate the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Christ, which is our all in all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for this bread and this cup, a reminder to us of what it costs you to redeem us, to take us from enemies to friends from far away to near. Father, we thank you today that that was all done because you desire to have a relationship with us. Father, I pray that today, you would help us to realize how special that relationship is. It's so special compared to any other relationship. It's like a juicy sirloin steak and a bone. Lord, I pray that we would truly desire our relationship with you above all else. And all our other relationships would be centered in our relationship with you and reflective of our relationship with you. And, Lord, again, as we take the bread and take the cup today, I pray that you would give us thankful hearts and worshipful hearts directed to you. We pray in Jesus' name.